Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. And a good story's been a little harder to find than usual lately, right? Because I've been gone. But I'm back. This is Julie, and here we have episode 357 of Forgotten Classics, where we're going to start The Wind Boy by Ethel Cook Elliott. This book is a longtime favorite of mine from when I was a child, and my mother and I read it together, and she even gave me a copy to read with my own children, and to my great sorrow, I never did. No special reason, I just forgot. Maybe because Harry Potter came along, and we read that instead. Maybe because I always meant to, and it slipped to the back of my mind. But... One of the reasons I'm back from my hiatus, where I got fully rested, is that my youngest daughter, Rose, who's not so young as you might think (laughs) to be interested in this story, has been catching up on forgotten classics. And that made me think, well, at least one of my daughters, and maybe the other, will listen to me read it and then go on to enjoy it when they have their own children and actually read it to them. So there is not a lot of information on Ethel Cook Elliott. In fact, there's almost none. She wrote other books, some for kids, some for teenagers, some for adults. But as to autobiographical information, you'll find things out there saying, oh, she was T.S. Elliott's grandmother. Nope, that's not right. And they connect her to various male relatives who also were authors. But about she herself, we have almost nothing. And I have to say, in recording and rereading this book, I found more in it than, of course, I noticed when I was a kid. And it's not some of these really obvious moral lessons that you find in such a very old book, because this book is so old that, for one thing, it's out of copyright. For the other thing, my mother read it when she was a kid. That's the kind of book where you often expect to find little moral messages tucked in. And these are kind of woven in because otherwise you don't have a good story if you don't have some basic things that you're grounding everything in. But they're really subordinate to an exciting tale and a fantastical tale. So I hope everyone enjoys it. We're going to listen to a couple chapters at a time, even though they're fairly short, because they seem to kind of go together in telling pieces of the story. And I know we have at least one young listener from when I did The Magic City, and I hope that young listener will be back. And I want to keep the story to where it's fun to understand and think about and also exciting to wait for the next pieces of. I've been listening to Anne of Green Gables, by the way. That's Heather at Craftlet's most current story. I have to say, she finishes a chapter or two, and I cannot wait for the next week. But I have to, because it is a unique voice that is recording this for her, and it's not found anywhere else. And it's the best I've heard ever for this story when I look around trying to find another way to hear it. Hopefully, this will get you equally interested. I know I'm going to enjoy it. So let's dive into The Wind Boy. The Wind Boy, Chapter 1, The Girl from the Mountains In a spring twilight, a young girl was walking down a village street. Just at a glance, anyone might know she was a stranger there. 
For one thing, her dress was like nobody else's. It was the color of sunlight on a brown forest path when the sun is low behind the trees, and it was made tunic fashion with a belt of twisted grasses. Under the tunic was a white gimp of sheerest, softest lawn, gathered at the neck and wrists with a silver cord. To add to the strangeness, she wore on her feet sandals that looked as though she had made them herself out of bark and braided weeds. In one hand, she swung a loosely tied bundle wrapped in purple. Her head was quite hatless, and though she was a tall girl, quite grown up, her hair was blowing free in soft curls almost to her shoulders, the color of a forest brook when the sun finds it. Do you wonder that people turned to look after her? But the strange girl never noticed the surprised glances of the villagers or the cries of the children. She walked along, her head up, her clear eyes eager, for she had an errand in this village that made her feet step lightly and touched the corners of her grave mouth with a smile. She walked along like this until almost at the edge of the village she came to a white mansion, bowered in gardens, and looking as out of place in its setting as she herself looked, only in a different way. There she paused, as who came to the village ever failed to pause, to look up at the mansion's graceful arches and vine-covered walls. And well she may stare, thought the village policeman who was coming toward her along the street. She is hardly likely ever to have seen such a grand, fine house in all her days. How countrified she looks! The strange girl spoke to the policeman just as he was passing proudly. "'Can you tell me, please, who lives in this beautiful house?' she asked. The policeman stopped, very glad of an opportunity to awe the country girl. "'Yes, I can tell you all right. The greatest living artist in the world owns that mansion. That's what the papers call him, the greatest living artist in the world. But for all that, he thinks our village a very pretty spot, and he has built the home of his old age here.' It is truly a beautiful house, the strange girl said, still gazing up at the graceful arches and the vines dark green against the white marble. Yes, agreed the policeman, standing taller and prouder than ever in his blue coat with its smart double row of brass buttons. People come from great distances just to look at it as you are doing now. The artist drew the plans for it himself, and the plans for those gardens stretching away at the back, too. They run almost out to the woods, gardens and lawns and terraces. The artist knows the colors of all the flowers that are to blossom there, and their times. I can tell you a little later in the summer, those gardens are a marvel to everybody, especially strangers like you. Those gardens must be a splendid place for children to play said the strange girl. Did he mean them for that? No. Well, perhaps he did mean them for one child a little. His granddaughter lives with him. But no other children get into them, for she's not allowed to mix with our village children. Why not? asked the strange girl, surprised. Why, she's much too grand, of course. She has a governess and a nurse and teachers who come out from the city every day or so to teach her music and dancing and such things. She's a regular little princess, I can tell you, in spite of this being a democracy. But you must be from the country, aren't you? Yes, I am from the country, said the strange girl. I have just come from the mountains. 
As the strange girl said this, for the first time the policeman's eyes met and looked directly into her clear, quiet eyes. And at that instant a strange thing happened to him. He thought that here at the end of Main Street he was standing all by himself on the pavement and holding conversation with the purple mountains that lifted their heads far off above the roofs of the artist's mansion. But he was not alone, of course, for here was the country girl in her brown tunic and funny sandals, and he was looking straight into her eyes. It must have been in her eyes he saw the mountains. The notion went as quickly as it had come. But who lives in that tiny house, that little brown house? asked the strange girl. She had turned away her eyes. That, that little brown cottage, foreigners, refugees, strange people. A mother and her two children. The father went away to the war, and then they were driven out of their own village and country by the enemy. They came here, and the mother got work in a factory in the city. But the father has never found them. They aren't even sure he is alive. They're very poor. That is the house I am looking for, I think said the strange girl. I am answering the mother's advertisement for a general housework girl. See, here it is. She pulled out of her pocket a clipping that read, Wanted, a girl for general housework, one who can do plain cooking and is fond of children, small wages, but a good home. Small wages, I should think so, laughed the policeman. Much good it'll do you to answer that ad. Well, I have come for that, said the strange girl. And as she passed him to go to the little brown house, again he saw distant purple mountains in her eyes. He stayed for some time looking after her, wondering at himself. The little brown cottage stood in a tiny garden with a tall, thick hedge of lilac bushes between it and the artist's lawn. The strange girl crossed the street and went in at the low, swinging gate. The door was around at the side of the house, and to get to it, the strange girl had to pass the open sitting-room windows. She stopped to look. It was a little, low, oblong sitting-room, she saw, with thin, golden-brown curtains at the windows and golden-brown cushions in the chairs. There was very little furniture, and what there was was worn and rickety. But it was a happy room for all that. There was a shelf of books on the wall, and under it a square table with a bowl of bright tulips, purple, red, and white, in the middle of it. Perhaps it was the tulips that gave the room its happiness. But in a minute, as the strange girl stood there, more happiness came into it. Much more. For a little girl and her brother came in from the kitchen carrying spoons and plates to set on the table for supper. The little girl was eight years old, and her brother was nine. You could see easily enough that they were foreigners. In that village, even in that country, there was no such copper-colored hair. The boy's head was a thick mop of burnished copper. His eyes were large and dark and thoughtful. The girl's hair was copper-colored, too, and soft as cobwebs. It was braided in two smooth pigtails that ended just halfway down her back. Both were dressed in a dull blue flannel that looked as if it had once been the same piece. And indeed this was true, for last year, when they were living at home in their own village, it had been one of their mother's prettiest dresses. The little girl was smiling, as at her own happy thoughts. Oh, Kay, 
she cried suddenly as they were putting the things about on the table. Let's not wait for Mother to make the porridge. Her train's so late. I'm sure I can manage perfectly. I've watched her so many times. Of course you could manage. So could I. But Mother doesn't want us to light the stove. You know that as well as I do. Oh, but if it were to surprise her? She does come home so tired. And to find a nice hot supper? But Kay shook his head. I'm sure it would make her tireder if we did what she's told us not to do. The little girl's face fell. The strange girl, leaning in at the open window, heard her sigh. Oh, don't sigh, little copper-haired girl, she suddenly cried. I am quite old, almost grown up, you see, so I can light the fire, and we will surprise your mother. Both children turned in amazement toward the window, and the strange girl leaning there saw something beside amazement in their faces, too. It was sudden fright. Why should they be frightened by a friendly voice, she wondered. Of course, the minute they saw her clear, smiling eyes, their fear vanished. Oh, will you? cried the little girl. But Kay asked, Who are you? My name is Nan, and I have come all the way from the mountains answering your mother's advertisement for a general housework girl. But perhaps she has found one? No, no one has even come to talk to her about it. You see, they all know how poor we are. Then may I come in, please, and we will get supper to surprise her. The little girl, standing wide-eyed and eager behind her brother, now cried, Oh, splendid! Do, do come in! I'll open the door! And she started quickly toward it. But Nan, the stranger girl, laughed and, putting one hand against the window casing, leapt lightly over the sill into the room. That surprised the children. Why, Kay himself, who was strong and supple, could never have done that. But Nan had done it as though it were nothing. You are Kay, she said to the boy, for I heard her call you that. But what is your name? she asked the little girl. Gentian? Gentian, that is a flower. Nan bent down and looked into the eager, upturned face in the twilight of the room. And you are like a gentian. Have you ever seen one? No, we haven't, Kay answered for his sister. But father has, in a country where he traveled once. They are blue like gentian's eyes, and though they grow among stones on windy hillsides, they are quiet like the sky. Father always said that one small gentian had all the sky folded around its soft fringes. It is a special magic that makes that possible. Gentian magic. Cold and frost do not scare it, for it has the whole sky held close to give it company and heart. Yes, said Nan. The gentian is like that. Are you like that? she asked the little girl. But Gentian laughed. The cold scares me, she said. Last winter it was dreadful. That was before Mother got work in the factory and could buy us warm coats. Then, Kay interrupted. Father said she's like that. But Gentian did not listen. Let's get supper, she cried. How glad I am you're here, Nan. Mother will be so surprised. When the stove was lighted in the kitchen and the kettle put on to boil, Kay suddenly said, It's queer to have you so friendly, Nan, and not laughing at us all. 
Everyone else here in this country seems to be laughing. It's because we're foreigners, I suppose. Once I told a boy at school about Chinchin's name and what it means, he laughed and laughed. I'm careful now not to say the things I think to anybody. But you say the things you think to me. You began at once to say them. How was that? Kay looked at her, wondering himself. You're different from anybody I've ever seen before, he said then. I forget that you're a stranger. Nan still looked at him, and then his eyes suddenly wavered from those clear, quiet ones that were so kind. He bent his head and turned away. You must not like him any the less when I tell you that he had turned away to hide his tears. They were strange, happy tears. How splendid to have a friend, and all so suddenly in this alien village. When the porridge was made, and some wheaten cakes, too, Nan and the two children went back into the sitting-room to wait for Mother. It was almost dark now, but they did not light the lamp or the candles. They sat on the bench under the window, Nan in the middle, and she began to tell them stories that she had learned in the mountains. But she had hardly begun when there came a rustle and a scratching, odd little sounds at the window above their heads. Both children sprang up and faced about, but Nan only turned her head. There, dim in the falling darkness, was the weirdest face. Little green eyes, a huge nose, terribly frowning brows, and pointed brown ears. You have never seen anything so ugly, and it is not likely that you ever will. The children backed away toward the other side of the room, silently terrified. But Nan, to their amazed horror, reached a hand up to seize the face. It ducked away just in time and vanished from the window. The children heard its feet running lightly around Kay's flower beds in the garden. Then Kay cried, It never came right up to our window before. Gentian ran to Nan and hid her face against her breast. It was an ugly face, Nan comforted, but it's only a mask someone has put on to frighten you. Anyone can see that. Who is it? Yes, it is a mask. Kay agreed. I was the first of all the children to know that. They don't believe me yet about it. But it's just as scary for all its being only a mask. I don't see how, Nan said sensibly. Who wears it? Why, that's the scary part. Nobody can find out. Well, it looked to me as though it were a child or some little mischief or other, Nan said. No, it can't be. Why can't it be? Because if it was any child in the village, it would have been caught before now. It has been frightening children for days. One very little boy, when he saw it on the street in the dusk, was made sick. Our teacher and the artist who lives next door, and even the policeman himself, say it must be caught, and when it is caught, punished. But I think even the policeman is a little afraid of it. Where do the children see it usually? It's always on this street in front of our house or the artists, and it's always just at twilight. It never came into our yard before, though, and right up to the window. And it hadn't better do so again, Nan said soberly, unless it wants a good chase to make a little boy sick with fear. She walked suddenly back to the window and leaned there, looking out. The ugly thing is not in the garden, she said. Let's just forget it until it comes again, then let's catch it and pull off its mask.
We'll see then that it's nothing to be frightened of. And just at that moment, the children's mother, Detra, came in at the little swinging gate. Chapter 2 The Robe of Starry Brightness Detra, the children's mother, was surprised enough to find the strange girl from the mountains waiting for her in her house. But the children would not let Nan explain. Kay ran to his mother, laughing and merrier than she had seen him in a long time. Perhaps he had never been so merry since those days back in their own village where they all lived so happily, and it was Hazar the father who went out to work, and Detra stayed home with her children. Oh, mother, we have such a surprise. Shut your eyes. Say not a word. Detra sat down on the bench under the window. Her train had been late and so crowded that she had stood in it all the way from the city. She was very tired and glad to shut her eyes. But when she had done so, it was as though a light had gone out in the room, for Detra's eyes were so bright with mother love the children missed them when they were shut. Then Kay and Gentian and Nan, on tiptoes, hurried into the kitchen and brought in the supper. When they had brought it in, and Nan had lighted the lamp and the three candles, too, that stood on the bookshelf, and set the bowl of tulips exactly in the middle of the table, the children both cried at once, "'Now you may look, mother darling, look!' And when the tired mother opened her eyes and saw the warm food nicely cooked and the flowers and the candles and the children's shining faces, she was as surprised and as happy as they could have hoped. But she looked at Nan in a very puzzled way. "'Who are you?' she asked. "'You have been very kind to my children and me. You do not live in this village?' "'I have just come today from the mountains.' said Nan. I am answering your advertisement for a general housework girl. I hope I'll do. Detra's first surprise was as nothing to her surprise now, but she was silent for a minute. Oh, she will do, she will, mother, cried Kay and Gentian in one breath. She made those little wheaten cakes just for you so deliciously. You will let her stay? Detra passed her hand across her eyes. I am not dreaming, she asked. At that, how the children laughed. Asleep? Not you. Why, mother, you are as wide awake as we. And she may stay? All this time, Nan stood there looking as eager and hopeful as the children. Her face, her eyes, her half-grave smile all said, Yes, may I stay? At last, Detra spoke, looking up wonderingly at the strange girl. But I can't pay you. Not what you're worth. Why, you aren't the sort of maid I had in mind at all. You are you are a superior person somehow. At that, Nan laughed as merrily as the children had laughed a minute before. No, I am just a girl from the mountains, she said. I am sure you can pay me all I need. And you are so young, said Detra then. How old are you? Seventeen? Eighteen? Back in the mountains we do not reckon our age. I do not know how old I am, but I know that I am old enough to bake wheaten cakes and keep a house clean and look after the children. I have come a long way, Detra, to answer your advertisement. 
Dentro did not at that moment think it was strange that Nan should call her by her Christian name. She only remembered to wonder at it later. I shall be very happy to have you stay, she said then. If only you are sure you really want to. You see, it is not just the small wages I can pay. It is also that we do not have many nice things to eat. Will you be contented with almost nothing but wheaten cakes and porridge? Cakes and sweets we seldom have, for I am quite poor. The children were holding their breath. Suppose, oh, suppose this new, gay, beautiful friend should go away to a house where there were better things to eat and more wages, to a fine place like the artists over the hedge. Their mother must have heard their thoughts, for she added, The artist who lives in the beautiful mansion across the hedge could very probably make a place for you. His housekeeper is always engaging new mates and discharging old ones. Nan shook her head. She was not tempted by the artist's mansion. Then the children threw themselves upon her. You are going to stay and live with us and be with us forever, they cried. Bring another cup and plate, then, said Detra. The table is set for three only. I have set a place for myself in the kitchen, Nan answered. You have your children only at night. I shall be happy with them much of the day. Is there anything else you need? Detra looked at the table carefully. No, you have thought of everything. Have you plenty for yourself? Yes, thank you. Then Nan went out, softly closing the door into the kitchen. The supper was delicious. Such wheat and cakes they had never tasted. No, not even back in their own village. How grateful Detra was to have found this ready and perfect for her. Always before, when she got home from the factory, no matter how tired she was, she had had to prepare supper herself. While they ate the good food, the children told their mother all about the coming of Nan, how she had jumped in over the sill so lightly, so lightly, how she had frightened away the masker that had come right up to their very window and stood looking in. She wasn't a bit afraid. She just grabbed at the mask and almost caught it. But at the recounting of this adventure, Detra was troubled. The masker in our garden? she exclaimed. Oh, why doesn't the policeman or someone catch it? It is wicked to frighten children so. I should think the artist would do something. He himself has a little girl to be frightened. She was really talking to herself, but the children heard. Oh, no, Gentian said. Rosemarie will never be frightened. Her nurse and her governess are always with her. The masker would keep away from them, and at night she sleeps in her high nursery. A big girl like that to sleep in a nursery. But she will not be frightened. Oh, I hope she is never frightened, Kay said almost under his breath. For Kay, although he had never even spoken to the artist's little granddaughter, felt that he knew her and liked her very much. When she passed in her grand, shining automobile, sitting straight between her two attendants in the back seat, or when she looked at him from her high nursery window, when he had reached the top of the cherry tree at the door of the little brown house, her merry brown eyes seemed always to be saying the same thing. I like you ever so much. If only we were allowed, we might be such splendid playmates. 
I have read so many jolly stories that I want to tell you. I like sea stories best. Stories of pirates and runaway boys and hidden treasure. You do too, I know. And I want you to let me climb your cherry tree. You're splendid at tree climbing. Yesterday I thought you were falling, but you caught yourself. Oh, I do want to play with you. How even such merry brown eyes as Rose Marie's could say all that in a passing flash, I do not know. But Kay was always sure they did. And afterward, Rose Marie said he was right. She was thinking that, and much more. So now he repeated in a whisper, Oh, I hope she is never frightened. Well, I don't want her to be frightened either, Tetra answered, for she had heard. But just because his own little granddaughter is safe is no reason why the artist should go on letting all the other little boys and girls in the village be frightened. It is always on this street near his house. He could do something. But he has done something, Kay assured her. In school today, Miss Todd told us that the artist had promised that the masker was to be caught and no child frightened by it any more. He is going to give the policeman a lot of money when he catches it, and then the masker is to be punished. Miss Todd warned us in case it might be one of us. Imagine! Detra sighed. I am glad that something is being done. They know then what a shame it is to let children be frightened. At that minute, Nan came in to clear the table. The children helped her, moving back and forth with her from the sitting room to the kitchen. When all was cleared, the floor brushed, and the table set back against the wall, they went into the kitchen to do the dishes. Leave the door open, Detra called. I like to hear your voices. Then she went up to her room, and soon came down with something in her hands. Nan, standing at the sink, could see through the open doorway that it was a little statuette made of plastilina. Detra set it on the table under the lamp, and drawing up a chair, began to work on it with her fingers and a little tool, sharp at one end, blunt at the other. "'That is the wind boy,' Kay confided. "'Mother is an artist,' he said it proudly. Detra heard and looked up to smile at him. "'It may be the wind boy sometime,' she said a little wistfully. I am sure he is lighter and freer and more joyous than I have made him, though ever so much more the real wind boy. He should be as happy and as light as air, but somehow he won't come right. Then to herself she added softly, I am too tired, perhaps at night after the day's work. I might make him right in the morning, but this is the only time I have. Nan had left the dishes and drawn near. She stood above Detra, looking down at the little figure. The wind boy was not like any human boy that you have ever seen. His hair grew in thick, soft curls over his head. His eyes were far apart, wide, and should have been happy, but somehow they were touched with sadness. His dress was a fluttering tunic, not quite to his knees, and his body was slim and supple. High above his head were spread wide, strong, swift wings. His feet were just leaving the earth in flight, and his face seemed to say, Yes, I am coming. Yes, all this was true of the wind boy, even if he was just a little statuette made of plastilina. It was a very beautiful little statuette. But it was so beautiful, 
so wonderful that Detra and even the children knew that it might be ever so much more beautiful and ever so much more wonderful. Why isn't he happier, mother? asked Kay, who had drawn near too. If I could fly, I'd be happier than that. If I could fly, Gentian said softly, I'd fly with more of me, with all of me. I don't know, puzzled Detra, passing her hands across her eyes. I wish I could make him happier and make all of him ready to fly. But Nan said nothing, though she bent down and looked for a long time earnestly and with great interest at the wind boy. After a time, she went back to her dishes. Mother may show the wind boy to the artist if it ever comes as she wants it, Kay told her as he wiped the last spoon and handed it to Gentian to put away. But she doesn't want anyone to speak of it yet. It is a secret. But if it is a secret, why do you tell me? asked Nan. Oh, but somehow, I didn't think, not to you. What Kay meant was that Nan was already so dear to him and Gentian that for a minute he did not remember she was not one of them. But Detra had heard from the next room, and now she lifted her eyes from her work on the wind boy to say, Don't bother, Kay, this time. You didn't mean to let my secret out, I know, and Nan will remember not to tell. It is just the village people. We don't want them to laugh at us, that is all. But why should they laugh? asked Nan. I don't know, Detra answered. But they do, all the time. Our ways are not their ways, I suppose. Just then Nan noticed that Gentian's eyes were beginning to droop. Let us go to bed and leave the house quiet for your mother to try to get the wind boy right in, she suggested. Yes, do go to bed, children dear, agreed Detra. Tomorrow is Saturday and you will want to play hard, and Gentian, you may show Nan her room in the attic. I am sorry that it isn't a nicer one. But when Gentian, and Kay too, had taken Nan up to the attic room, she thought it was very nice indeed. You will think so too. But first I must tell you about this little brown house that was set down like a stepping stone to the artist's magnificent one. Downstairs there were only the kitchen and the sitting room and a little hall. Upstairs, Mother's and Gentian's room, and back of that, Kay's room, and above these two rooms, the attic, a long low room with a slanting plastered ceiling and a dormer window at each end, with their sills almost on a level with the floor. Under one sloping side stood a narrow bed painted white. By one of the windows was a chest of drawers, and in front of the other window a low three-legged stool. By the bed lay a strip of faded blue rug. That was everything there was in the room. But when Nan had put the candle on top of the chest of drawers, the light gleamed pleasantly on the white walls and ceiling, and the faded blue rug by the bed shone like a bit of dim water. Kay had carried up Nan's bundle, wrapped carelessly in its purple covering, it was very small, he thought, to hold all of Nan's wardrobe. Why, most people who went anywhere to stay took a trunk along at least. He laid the bundle on the white coverlet of the bed. What a beautiful room, exclaimed Nan, looking all around. And Gentian and Kay did see suddenly that it was a very beautiful room. How it happened, I don't know. 
Perhaps it was so beautiful because the night had got in through the windows which were both open. The room now was beautiful like the spring evening, only that it was smaller. The spring night air, sweet with the smell of budding cherry blossoms, and spring flowers, and grass, and earth, stirred against their faces. And Gentian thought, It is just as though we were out in some little room in the sky, and all the spring fragrance coming to us there. Then she noticed the purple bundle that Kay had put on the bed. Oh, may we see into your bundle, she begged. Perhaps it was rude to ask that, but Gentian did not mean to be rude. Nor Kay, when he echoed, Oh, yes, do let us see what you brought. Nan laughed. Little curiosities. Yes, you may undo it, Gentian. It is all my clothes. So Gentian, with eager fingers, undid the knotted purple cloth and opening it on the bed spread out nan's things there was another dress wood brown just like the one nan was wearing there was another guimp too sheer and soft and white gathered with silver strings at the neck and wrists there was a change of underlinen very white and soft too and there was a nightgown but gentian did not know that it was a nightgown nor would you it was the color of the spring night sky faint blue, and it was scattered through and through with glimmering stars. The stars were not embroidered on the cloth or woven there, but seemed to shine forth from deep within it just as the stars show forth in the sky. And though at first glance the robe was only a film, still it was dense, and you could look deeply into it as into the sky. When Gentian took it up to spread it out on the bed, the scent of pines and fir trees and sap and arbutus hung in the air all about her, and she had to look to see that she had anything in her hands at all, for the robe had no weight. For a minute, Gentian thought that a strip of the sky must somehow have blown into the window and onto the bed. "'What is this?' she asked wonderingly. "'It is too beautiful for a dress.' "'Yes, it is too beautiful for a day dress when there is work to be done,' answered Nan. "'It is my night robe.' "'Do you wear it to sleep in?' cried Gentian, amazed, "'for it was hard to believe that anyone would put on anything so lovely just to go to bed in.' "'Yes, I sleep in it.' "'But I never heard of such a nightgown.' "'Back in the mountains we always wear nightgowns like this.' "'But why is it so light?' When I pick it up, it's just as though it were wings that lifted out of my hands, and if I held it, it might carry me away with them. Yes, that is what I feel, too, when I wear it, said Nan. Nan was sitting cross-legged on the floor by the low window sill, her elbows on her knees, her chin in her hands. Her eyes were grave and thoughtful. I am wondering about the wind boy, she said. Why should a wind boy be sad? Why, just because Mother hasn't managed to get him happier, answered Kay. He isn't real, you know. He's just a statue. He added these sensible words because Nan was looking so strangely serious about it. Yes, the little image down there isn't alive, of course, she agreed, looking up at Kay. But I am wondering about the wind boy himself. I don't like to think that he is sad. A wind boy should not be sad. Even Gentian laughed at that. Why, there isn't any real wind boy, Kay said. Mother just made him up, you know, because she's an artist and can. But Nan stayed grave. 
That's just why there is a real wind boy, she said. Because your mother is an artist, a true one. If she weren't an artist, but just a pretend one, well, then, there very likely wouldn't be any wind boy. But don't you yourselves know that since she has made him so true, there must be a truer one? If we could only see him. No, the children did not know that. But Nan looked so wisely kind and beautifully grave there in the open window by the starlight and candlelight that they believed now what they could not understand at all. Do you suppose he's down there in the garden, perhaps, looking in at your mother as she works? Nan wondered. It's not right that he should be sad wherever he is. When he can fly, too, cried Kay, who for this minute believed in the wind boy. How could a boy that could fly be sad? Let's find out, said Nan, then softly. If we can find out, perhaps we can help him to be glad again. And if we can make him be glad again, we shall be helping Mother, too, cried Kay, his eyes bright at the thought. For she would have a happy wind boy to copy then and get him right the way she thinks he ought to be. Gentian and Kay both knelt by Nan and looked down into the garden. But though they looked so hard that they almost saw the color of the jonquils in the starlight, they saw no wind boy, wandering troubled and alone. We will find him somehow, though, Nan promised, for he is here, somewhere near. Or how came that little image? Only now, tonight, we had better sleep as she told us to. A little later, when Kay was fast asleep in his room, and Gentian was about to fall asleep in her bed in her mother's room, she suddenly said to herself, Oh, how I wish I might give the wind boy some of my happiness. I have so much in despair. I am brimmed full, like the spring we found in the woods with mother last Sunday. Nan makes my happiness because she is here. She's up there just above me in her starry brightness. That is what Gentian that night and always after called the blue night robe. Perhaps she will float far tonight. It is so light, that gown. But she will come back before morning. Together we three shall find the wind boy. He will be happy again. The statue will come right. Mother will be happy. The spring was brimmed full of the most sparkling. But in the midst of these dreamy thoughts, Gentian forgot everything and floated off like a petal into sleep. <laughs>